The following reading is Book of Britain. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did reading it. I'm giving this quick introduction because unfortunately, some of my introduction on Sabbath didn't get recorded. All right, so Book of Britain is a mysterious book originating from, it's a given, Britain, and the writers identify themselves as the disciples of Joseph of Arimathea. And so this book documents how Joseph of Arimathea came over to Britain, some of the people that came with him, and how he spread Christianity. Really, he confronted the Druids, and he spread Christianity through the Druids first who embraced it. And of course, with all the propaganda and how much the Druids have been villainized, that should cause all of us to turn our heads. Again, a lot of this is mysterious. However, towards the end of the book, the writers seem to identify that it was compiled, at least originally, soon after King Cole. As in, King Cole was a merry old soul, if you know your mother goose. King Cole, of course, was a Christian under the teachings of Joseph of Arimathea, and he died defending Britain from the invaders. Well, his daughter, according to the Brits, was Queen Helena. Well, Queen Helena had a son, and his name was Constantine. And of course, Constantine became the emperor. One of the great things about Book of Britain is that because it stems from the teachings of Joseph of Arimathea, who did he teach about? He taught the Druids about Yehusha HaMashiach. And with that comes many quotes from Yehusha HaMashiach, some of which, actually many of which, are not in the Gospels. And so you can see here that the writer is not trying to replicate the Gospels. He's actually take there's two whole chapters in this book devoted just to Yahusha HaMashiach, what he did, what he taught, and the writer is not sourcing the Gospels that we have in canon. He's sourcing Joseph of Arimathea. All right, I think that pretty much covers it. Where this picks up is when I am reading from Acts 29, which is uh, contextually, so you understand, is a lost chapter of Acts. And if anybody has the Sefer Bible, Stephen Pidgeon, who compiled the Sefer, he actually brought Acts 29 back into, you know, Acts ends on chapter 28 and he brings it back in, slaps it in there. So uh, this is where Paul goes from Rome to Spain. He goes up to Britain. He swings around to Switzerland and then he goes back. But when he's in Britain, he actually confronts the Druids. And there is a lot of hit pieces out there on the Druids. I mean, a lot of propaganda. And it makes you wonder. So listen to this. This is, what the, this is how the Druids respond to Paul. And it came to pass that certain of the Druids came unto Paul privately and showed by their rites and ceremonies that they were descended from the Yahudim, those would be the Jews, which escaped from bondage in the land of Mitraim. And the apostle Paul believed these things and he gave them the kiss of peace. All right. So what's interesting here is it says that the the Druids, they came from Egypt. They are actually claiming to be the Yahudim. They came from Egypt when they were in bondage. Now, when is this bondage? What are they talking about? Now, most people will immediately, they're going to go to the bondage of Mitraim, the Exodus account. That may be the case. What's interesting about this, this is that Book of Britain and Book of Wisdom, they both come from the Colbrin. The Colbrin Bible, the first half of the book, it all takes place in Egypt. And it actually records the Exodus account from the Egyptian perspective and so on and so forth. So this very book, which is a Druidic book, 
it has ties to Egypt. So that's interesting. So that ties in with Acts 29. We, we can see that there. We can see that the, the, the entire rights of the Druids came from the Yahudim coming out of Egypt. However, I'm still holding uh, out hope that when they talk about the bondage that they were freed from in, the, in Egypt, that it's actually talking about the fall of Judah to the Bab Babylonians when Yirmiyahu uh, or Jeremiah um, and Baruch, who was his disciple, they actually went to Egypt, and that's where we kind of lose sight of them. And as I've shown you in the past, Yirmiyahu and, uh, and uh, possibly Baruch, they go up to Ireland with a princess of Judah, and they establish the Jewish throne there. And so that could very well be the beginning of the Druids. They may have been the disciples of Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah. All right. All right, so let's get into this. I dropped the PDF in here. Hopefully, you guys all have it. Book of Britain. You can see the table of contents there. Hopefully, we'll make it through the first five tonight. We'll see if my voice holds up. The uh, chapters two and three and four is where it gets really, really good. And then the ending of this book is phenomenal. Uh, chapter one, hang with me here. You know, we'll get through it. Savage parts. Stopping for a drink of coffee. My voice is going to need it tonight. To my stalwart son, always well beloved, I greet you heartily, desiring to hear of your welfare. Be not displeased at my going from Kilshaw or my manner of departure, for I first gave your mother and sister over to good keeping in the hands of the good mistress, Cotter. Verily, such tidings were brought to me by diverse persons of the craft, on matters of our, our abiding concern, that I was beholden to come hither words, nor durst I now go hence, for the charge remains lying heavily upon my breast. As for Hempshell, he lied to us. Now, the, what, this is kind of like a one-way letter. We don't know all that's going on here. We don't even know why this was included in the book. There's several different writers in this book. They've all been stitched in here together. And... The first part is a bit of a mystery, but I'm going to read through it anyways. As for Hemshell, he lied to us. Oh, that dirty Hemshell. For he is a knave and a, and a curlish one, and we were fools to be deceived by his wiles and his tongue speaking such wild language. I will entreat with the bailiff and mayhap. He who stands in the Adonai's place will abide my supplication. As we planned, you do there, thereafter, but I pray you beware in what manner you walk. For those among whom we walk are full, black-hearted, and enwrapped in the ways of wickedness. They desire an end to all things in which we hold fast, but are not as staunch that they will set upon you in a manly way, but will start out upon you like lurking footpads. Beware, too, what you eat and drink and trust, not even they who speak fair unto you, for the hands of all outsiders are against us. Now, you have to some context that I can give you here is that the, these people who write this book all affirm that their their faith, their belief, and they're they're attributing their teachings coming from Joseph of Arimathea is this is this uh, they're basically another way to say this is they're on the narrow path. There's not a lot of people who are holding to this, and at this time there's all these barbarians, as I mentioned, coming in and trying to conquer the island. Not only that, they've got the rise of the Roman Catholic Church to uh, to tend to in the in the West. 
a lot of stuff going on. So this is, you know, the Islanders of Britain, right? They've got a, they've got a lot of borders on all four sides, you know, ships coming in to deal with. Send me tidings of Long Will and good wife Abigail and of John the Cordwainer and John of the Wildwood Band and others who stood in at the tithing ere you departed. It is to my abiding contentment that we have been able to acquit the wanderers in full good measure, for their braziers did their work right stoutly in a cunning manner. Had we a crook among us, then it could have been wrought to more avail, but no matter, for their hand was firm and they faithfully followed the marks. Now take you the secured budget and go against Lulaw, and leave it there in the cell under the Grim, Grim's barrel where Elaine the peddler secured his hoard. There's so much going I have no clue uh, what this is, what's going on, you know, in this letter. In the Book of Britain, it is written, Iliad came seaborne in a ship of Tarsus. All right, now, Iliad, uh, Iliad is Joseph of Rama. He is Joseph of Arimathea, okay? This is one of the names they, they uh, call him in here. And now he's recounting this. He said he came seaborne in a ship of where? Of Tarsus. All right. Now I've heard a lot of people. I'm not going to present you maps right now. You guys can all picture where Britain is. I, I hear a lot of people arguing that Tarsus is actually uh, down on the the east southeast coast of Africa. I've heard this, and that when Jonah went to Tarsus, he actually went through the the Red Sea down there. That can't be. I've had so many um, historical references where. Tarsus is uh, either it's either on the northwest coast of Africa or it is Spain, South Spain. And so when when Jonah was fleeing to the furthest ends of the earth to Tarsus, going to Tarsus is like saying you're going to the ends of the earth. It was probably Spain. And in this context, it makes sense that it's Spain because Joseph of Arimathea, he, he's being cast out of uh, Yehuda. He's forced on a boat. He comes over again with Mary Magdalene. He comes over with um, uh, a few different people. Uh, there's a guy named Maxwell, a few others. Uh, Lazarus or Eliezer, um, who was uh, Miriam's brother, he's on the boat as well. We don't know what happens to him. He's never really spoken of again. But they go to Tarsus, all right? That's probably Spain, all right? So he, went, uh, he came seaborne in a ship of Tarsus from across the Sea of Wicta, setting up at Raphenia in the land of Wanes. From thence to the river Tarrant, which flows between the kingdom of Albany and the kingdom of Corin, Albany being the land between the Iceen and the Ictub. I've read commentary in a lot of these places and a lot of these people, they, they all believe this is the south of Britain uh, and that area, maybe even France, but they these names no longer exist to us. Passing Ivern and Insuls south of the Cathabillon, and then pass Dinsulin to take water at the town where ships traded, standing at the foot of the red cliff between the two white ones around the extreme of the world to the northern Icta in Siluria. Here they were unwelcome, but were permitted to take water and wood and to trade for meats and grain. Sailing thence toward the rising sun, they came to the place beyond Seprin called Summerland. Well, that's really interesting. That's a reference that I would like to know more where Summerland is. They were coldly welcomed by Homodrin of the chariots, but in the kingdom of Arvir Arvir Arvirigus, 
they came under the mantle of the high druid of the south. So here, here are the druids, and the druids are going to be the ones that welcome them eventually. They come under the mantle of the high druid of the south, whose ear was inclined towards them. And so we saw this with Paul, right? They were the only ones that were willing to listen to Paul. And they, why? Because they recognized that they were Jews. They came from Yehuda. For he understood full well the nature of the three-faced God. Well, let's put a red flag on that one there. I have no way of knowing what it says in the original translation. The king heard their words, but did not take them to heart, saying they differed little from what was there. Uh, so they're basically saying that whatever Joseph of uh, Joseph of Ram is telling them, they're like, yeah, that actually sounds like our faith. It sounds like what we already practice. Then were the shipborne wanderers given land over from the Isle of Departure. All right. The Isle of Departure, guys, that's the hidden wilderness. And uh, this is, uh, yeah. I've, I've, I've even gotten more evidence recently on the, the Isle of Departure, but yet we see this reference every so often in here. And it seemed that the Druids had some sort of connection with the Isle of Departure, which takes us right into the book, the uh, a book of Zosimos, if you remember me talking about that, where the people who lived in the Hidden Wilderness in the Isle of Departure, uh, they, they said that they came from Yermiahu, or Jeremiah, so we see the same tradition when they when they fled uh, from Yehuda when the Babylonians came, saying that could uh, that could they live where no one else could because of the spirits. The spirits live in the Isle of Departure. Then their holiness would be established before all the people. The strangers were sorely tried by the Druids, but the spirits troubled them not. Nor did the sickness of the place come upon them, and the people wondered. So, yeah, not even the, the, the spirits could hurt them. Apparently, a lot of people have diseases. You know, these strangers come. They're not getting sick. And this is one of the things Yahusha promised his Talmudim. He said, uh, you can go drink poison and you're not going to die. You know, and they, they were able to go to the ends of the earth and not be affected by all this stuff. They were troubled because of where the strangers were and were stirred up by the Druthin. But the shield of... Arvirigus protected them. Now, eastward and to the north, there was a lake. And in between this and the Isle of Departure, there was a swampland. And the, the Isle of Departure here might also be a reference to Avalon from King Arthur Tales. And there was a swampland and there was a village of houses that stood out above the water. And the moon maidens and moon matrons who served the dead dwelt there. Among... <laughs> This book just keeps getting more and more interesting as you read through it. Among these was Islas the Dreamer, who was sacred to the guardian of this place. Islas was the daughter of the queen's youngest sister and, the, and a holder of the king's favor. And when she attended him, she divulged her dreams. It happened that she dreamed the same dream thrice, and this was its manner as she told it to the king. Remember, Kepha had the same vision three times as well. Uh, Behold, I saw a moon which had three changing faces, and as I watched the changes, the moon itself changed and became a sun, and within the sun was a face of a god. As I looked long on the sun, another sun appeared, and such was its brilliance that the first sun appeared inferior in brightness. Then the two became one, and its brilliance filled the sky. 
In the midst of this, I saw the king and many Druthin and priests of the strangers. Then I saw a great battle sword, and the brilliance faded as did the figures. And only the sword remained, from which blood dripped drop by drop, then too it faded. The king took heed of the dream and gave the strangers land beside the summer house of the king, which could be reached by ships. Inland from here, the, the, uh, the gifted land extended to the tree now called the Great Oak, which still stands. Uh, and this would be the, uh, from what I've been able to gather, this place of the Great Oak is where the, um, uh, where Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea was buried, in which you can still go to this day. It's supposed to be the same church that, I think it's supposed to be the same church that King Arthur and Queen Guinevere were buried at as well. You know, when they dug them up in the excavations and they found that they were giants, uh, King Arthur and Queen Guinevere. And then they quickly buried them again because they're not supposed to be giants. And thence to the hills south of the residence were uh, Ilied, being wearied, rested against a great stone. Beyond this was an avenue of standing trees and oak trees placed one on one. On one and the gifted land came up against this. Now, this I find fascinating because for those of you who have been to my house, you will know I'm surrounded by ancient oak trees. And then not only that, uh, this is a... Carolina pastime as well as Georgia and other areas, but uh, I am neighbors to what is proposed to be what is the official, according to the official narrative, the oldest plantation home in South Carolina, and there is a grand avenue of oaks leading up to the house, and you go to all the plantation homes around here, and they have these grand avenue of oaks, and so the oak trees are sacred to the the Druid people, and so I find it really fascinating because they had spiritual qualities and they connected them to the spiritual realm. I find it fascinating that here we see the same thing. It, like there's something I feel like is lost in our hair, something that they're not telling us as to why they were planting these row of oak trees here in the South. And you see the same thing happening here. It extended southward to the Holy Vineyard, which was fenced about. The fruit of these vines was small and bitter in the mouth. The strangers built huts for shelter on the hillside, high enough to be free of the tides. They settled down and learned the language, though uh, Iliad and two of the women spoke it strangely. The words of the strangers fell on deaf ears, for the people were content with the gods they knew and did not wish to weary their minds with the words of the new ones. And of course, we're talking about the god that they're telling them about is Yahuwah slash Yahusha HaMashiach the Elohim of the Hebrews. When the strangers gathered in praise of the one true God, or you could say the one true Elohim, the tribesmen stoned them and shouted abuses. But Elid per persevered, and while later the people still would not believe that the Elohim of whom he spoke was more powerful than their gods, they would sit around and listen to his stories. So it sounded like some of the people in his party were stoned to death. Now when the strangers were granted the land, the Druthin disputed this with the king and said that they wanted a divine sign that their gods approved. Elid said, give me but half a year. Now, this is fascinating, all right? So the king here, he's the one that is giving Yosef uh, of Arimathea the land. He's giving him shelter here, saying, you can stay here. You have my blessing. The people aren't too happy about this. They're going to him. They stone some of the people. They're going up to the king and saying, you need to do something about this guy. 
because he's going to dethrone our gods. He's claiming a different god than ours, and we don't like this. Even though the Druids are like, yeah, checks out. Seems like it's the same faith. And so, so what, what they're asking for a miracle sign. And Yosef of Arimathea says, give me but half a year. Now pay attention to what happens. At the witnessing of this, the Druthans set up a holy stone, and Elid struck his staff into the soil to make the covenant. Just so you know, I, I am highly speculative that this staff, everyone talks about the Holy Grail. I'm highly speculative that this staff is the rod of Moshe. That, you know, Moshe, this is the, the very rod that Yahuwah created the world with, that Moshe pulled out of the ground in his father-in-law's garden, that then passed down to Yehuda and so on and so forth. And that we later, we later see uh, Yehusha HaMashiach coming in Revelation. He's writing with the rod, the staff. Uh, I, I think that Yosef of Arimathea got his hands on this, uh, being the caretaker of uh, Mary, uh, uh, Mary, the mother of Yahusha, uh, sort of. I mean, it was kind of Yochanan. It was. We'll see later on here that he, that Yosef was also his caretaker, and of course of Mary Magdalene. And I think that this passed down to him. Now, when the strangers were granted the land, the Druthans disputed this with the king and said that they wanted a divine sign that their gods. Okay, I just repeating this. Okay, he struck the staff into the soil to mark the covenant. All right. The following eve of summer, there was a gathering and it was found that a small green shoot was coming up from the ground beside the staff, which was an offshoot of the staff. What does that remind you of? Aaron's rod. The king decreed that this was a sign that the land accepted the strangers, but these took it as a sign that what they taught fell on fertile ground and would take roots. Here the strangers, now called the wise ones, were free from the yoke of Rome and from the intolerance of the Yahudim. So they were, I mean, I don't need to explain this, right? We have Rome in the east. It has not yet come to Great Britain. Uh, they will conquer it later on. We'll see this tonight, I think. Uh, but uh, they hadn't yet conquered Rome. And the intolerable Yahudim uh, who had kicked them out of the Yehuda, they're not here, but the, the Druids are. They were not subject to immoral customs and were among the right living people. Simple but pure in mind and body. Close by was a place for trading in metals, slaves, dogs, and grain. Here, Elid built himself a house unlike any others, for it was square and in two parts, more stone than timber. This place was called Quinad. Here on 12 portions of land, the wise strangers dwelt in peace and they built a church which was a full 60 feet long by a full 26 feet wide. At one end was a statue four feet high, carved from a beech trunk. The roof was thatched with reeds after the manner of the Britons. The walls were of wicker overlaid with plaster of chalk and mud. Elid is buried outside the forked path before the church, and on his tomb was written, I brought Mashiach to the Britons and taught them. I buried Mashiach, and now here my body is at rest. So if there's any, you know, doubt that this elite figure is Yosef of Arimathea, here you go. The very man who buried Mashiach is bringing Christianity to the Britons. 
Islas was the first convert, and it is said that she alone knew the secrets of the Holy Hawthorne. What this may be, none can now know. So <laughs> the writer of this, who's the writer of this book is like two, three hundred years later. He's like, yeah, the Holy, the Holy Hawthorne, I don't know what that is. It is said that when the Druthan murmured against the staff of, of Yosef of Rama, she placed a twig in water and it flowered. So these other people are still disputing it in his first convert. You know, she takes a twig from this, you know, because remember it grew twigs and even this twig is, uh, is now flowering in water. Here in this holy place under the direct guidance of God, our father founded the church in Britain. It is said that it was not built by human hands, which is true. And from here shall come that which will be the salvation of mankind in the years to come. Here was the resting place for the souls of the dead where they received their last sustenance before passing through the glass wall. Is the glass wall a reference to the firmament? Uh, your guess is as good as mine. From here ran the old road to the place of light, where my bright-winged spirits flew freely in the place called Dainsart in the old tongue. All right, we got through that uh, chapter two. This is where it really starts picking up and getting interesting. This is called Yahusha one. Uh, it would be, you know, Jesus, if you don't know who Yahusha is. Yahusha chapter, uh, Yahusha part one. This is the true record of events concerning Yahusha, son of Yosef and Miriam, which we have received by the hands of several who have lived within the circle of his light, and more especially from one who is our earthly father in the faith. So they're saying that what they're about to say comes to them directly from several individuals who knew Yahusha personally, not, not to forget the father of their faith, who is Yosef of Arimathea. He being not the least among the articulate ones who knew Yahusha, and a person of no mean estates, both in the distant land from whence he came and in this more viral land. For Yahusha came to fulfill the desires and longings of men expressed in certain holy books. That would be the you know, the, the Torah and the Tanakh, but more so in many unlettered hearts. For but what he's saying here, well, that's a really interesting statement. He's saying that many unlettered hearts, meaning those who did not know the holy books, they didn't know the Torah and the Tanakh. He came to, you know, to, to fulfill the desires of those people, but those people rejected it for the most part. So really it was the people who were unlettered, who, who didn't know the Torah, the Tanakh, he came and fulfilled the desires of their hearts. For it is written that such is the nature of things, the trees springing from the yearning of men shall not fail to bear fruits. For the holy books can be likened, likened to an egg containing the embryonic hopes and desires of men. In the sacred books of uh, Yosef of Rama, it is written. So I don't think, I don't know if we have this book. And in fact, there are multiple references to these books that apparently contain, that he wrote, uh, that contained um, sayings of Yahushua HaMashiach. You guys know my theory, I think, that the book of the Nazarene, as we know, the Gospel of Clyde, was probably penned by uh, Aristobulus, who was the, again, the father-in-law of Kepha. Uh, but apparently, uh, Yosef of Rama wrote some too, which we're going to get to these quotes. 
they kind of match, they go along with the Book of the Nazarene, Gospel Kaleidi, but they're not a, a direct match, telling us that there is other source material. Anyways, it is written, the son of Adam is the shepherd of men, and we know how diligently a shepherd tends his flocks. Yahushua came not as a shepherd to drive, but as one bearing a guiding lantern to show the way. It is also written, the son of Adam is the deliverer of men. And while we know from what we have to be delivered, those who lived in his land misunderstood the meaning. From the books of the, of the holy Marcus, that would be Mark, whose wife was one of our own fair race, her father being a Roman waykeeper whose wife was barren. And having this homeborn lady, his mother as a slave, had, her, had by her a child whom he later adopted and raised as a lady of estate. Word he senses there is just saying uh, from, from Marcus, who we all know is the Bezora of Mark, he married a Roman uh, woman. We learn much from this individual. But clearer to our understanding is that knowledge concerning deed imparted to us by our earthly father. So deed would be a, di a disciple of Yosef of Rama. Aristolus, who I think might be uh, uh, the same as Kepha's uh, father-in-law, not positive. Ar Aristolus taught that Elide had been one who commanded the ships of Rome, but was not without ships himself. So it was. So this would explain one of the reasons why Joseph of Arimathea was good friends with Pontius Pilate. He uh, he apparently uh, was very high ranking amongst the Romans, and not only did he command the ships of Rome, he had his own ships, and I do believe he was in the ten trade with his own ships. So it was that when Yahusha went down to the western sea of the Yahudim, which is not the sea of the setting sun. He was, he being one skilled with his hands, being a carpenter, of course, worked on them. So he, he worked, it's saying he worked on ships. Yehusha was brawny built and not one to take money without labor. Yehusha, our master, light of our life, was hung on the shameful cross in his 27th year. So here we see a, a deep, a, a, something different from, you know, the, the idea of his 30th year of life or his 33rd year of life. They're claiming his 27th year, you know, take that for what it is. This being the 1099th year of Britain. In the reign of Tiberius, they got that one right, ruler of the Roman lands to the east. Tiberius, of course, was emperor of Rome when he was killed. Within a year, Elite and others departed from their homeland shore by ship. Now, it's, so it says that Joseph of Arimathea left within one year. I've seen anything from seven years to 14 years. Now, I, I've i typically gone more like the seven-year route because that is when Pontius Pilate left. Remember now, he's good friends. Joseph of Arimathea is good friends with Pontius Pilate. He has his protection. Once Pontius Pilate was no longer governor, once he was replaced, he was suicided. He either committed suicide or he was suicided. One of the two, according to Acts 29, uh, the Yahudim are like, you don't got protection anymore. And this is when he left. And, of course, like I said, he took Mary Magdalene with him. He was protecting her, keeping a very close watch. Why do you suppose that is? You guys know my, my, my conclusions on that. 
This is within a year, which is even more interesting if he took Mary, uh, Miriam of Migdal with him. There would be more reason of concern to get her out. Within a year, he and others departed from their homeland shore by ship. Though this was demasted in a heavy storm, it made safe heaven in Sackill. So all accounts, even the, the Catholic, like uh, the Golden Legends, all talk about this heavy storm that uh, basically they shipwrecked them ultimately. But they, even though it destroyed their sails, they still made it miraculously to Britain. So even this agrees with that account. There he and his sons were joined by several other holy persons. They tarried a while before crossing to Laidlau, from whence they took a ship to Tarsus, which would be Spain, probably. In the year of Britain, 1,112, our father came from Rome with others because of the decrees of Claudius, ruler of all the Romans to the east, and Claudius is leading up to Nero before the real persecution begins. Seeking refuge beyond the oppression of Roman might where the true light could burn undisturbed. But the circle of Roman might spread ever wider like a thrown fisherman's net. Thirteen years after our master was hung on the cross, the Romans came to the fair land of Britain. And the might of their regions prevailed over the brave uh, Caridu, great battle king of the Britons. He was the leader of fighting men such as was not, will not be seen again. He was carried off, betrayed by an irrational woman, an honorable peace offering to appease the argument of might, together with the British fount of knowledge and wisdom. With him went the all-wise Fron, being held in honorable captivity until returned to the land of light in the intercession of our father, for those whom he befriended had not forgotten him. For Iliad taught that the greatest wrong man can commit against man is the betrayal of a friend. So where is he getting that from? Of course, you know, Yehusha Ambashiach was betrayed by his friend as well. And it looks like uh, he was able to get this guy returned. Now, the daughter of Caridu was Gladys. This is fascinating, by the way, guys. Uh, don't, don't zone out here. Now, the daughter of Caridu was Gladys, red-haired, blue-eyed, and slim, who married Pudens, commander of the legions, beloved of Paul the martyred in God, who died in the 1130 year of Britain. So why do they know about Paul? Paul, of course, also goes to Britain and uh, she is the daughter, uh, oh no, she married Pudens, who was blood by Paul, all right? Uh, Lane, son of Caridu, brother of Gladys, being the first Christian in Rome. In the year of Britain, 1127, there was a great outbreak of fighting and many men sought refuge within the enclosure of, now they're, they're fleeing to Yosef of Brahma for protection when this, uh, um, when this great outbreak of fighting begins. For the free Britons had risen, having been, been given an assurance of victory by no less than the battle goddess herself. Calling on Amarith and Camulos, the Britons followed their battle queen whose heart was afire because of the rape of her daughters. So the queen um, of this region of Britain, her own daughters are raped. We see a, a king who's betrayed by his friends. I mean, it's, it's bad for everybody right now. And this is epic. Like what she's about to say would make any guy want to follow her to battle. Like, this is exactly the kind of speech 
that a man wants to hear from their queen and go like, yeah, I will follow you if you're going to, if this is what you're all about. She stood tall in stature and was serene of face, speaking deep but melodiously. She knew the mastery of letters and spoke three tongues. She had fair hair hanging to her hips when not battle-girded. So she's sounding like a, 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 jo a Joan of Arc right here. Her head was circled by a golden war coronet, and her tunic was of green and brown interwoven in the manner of men. She wore a short cloak of purple. Thus she spoke before the battle. So they're getting ready to go in, and you can imagine, you know, she's up on her horse, and she's got her sword, and the enemy's out there, and this is what she says to them. I speak to you as a woman whose house has been violated and her daughters dishonored. We have been dealt with unjustly, and I appeal to you not only as a queen, but more so as a woman. Britons who honor their womenfolk cannot regard this lightly. Unlike the squirming Roman uh, Nerotes, she's referring to Nero here, I believe. Uh, maybe Nero's followers as well. I do not rule over servile and docile, unmanly men, because you know Nero was uh, I don't know, transgender. I guess I mean he was uh, he was he he went both ways. I mean he, at one point he became a woman and married a man, as I pointed out in other videos. And you know his uh, his government was probably filled with you know. <laughs> effeminate men let's put it that way so she's mocking rome she's like we're not you know uh you know yeah we're not uh we're not like the like nero and his people here i don't rule i rule over manly men uh i do not rule over servile and docile unmanly men who are less than men nor like he who rules over peddlers and hucksters nor am i like the cowardly man woman nero because they, they all knew that he, he claimed to be both a man and a woman. So uh, <laughs> who surrounds himself with perverts and half men and slaves who satisfy obscene desires. I mean, she's referring to like his pleasure palace and all those other things we've been going over in recent weeks. So Nero is literally the man of lawlessness. Such is the nature of the vile culture, these foreigners have introduced to our fair land. And she's saying, look, if you don't take up arms and fight against these, these, these invaders, you're gonna become like them. You know, you're gonna become uh, effeminate men because like, that's what we see happening in America right now. I am not such as these whose minds are fevered with an evil ferment. I rule over true men, little schooled in craftiness and deceit real men born to fight and withstand adversity. The code they live by is that of manliness. True men indeed who, in the cause of freedom, willingly heed the call to arms and stake their lives on the outcome. They willingly offer themselves as a sacrifice for the future of their womenfolk and children and their lands and property. So what are you fighting for? Your women, your children, your lands, and your private property. As the leader of this brave breed of men, I fervently plead for the assistance of your strong right arms. Let us not shirk the task 
or shun the opportunity to strike a blow for freedom. I pray the gods of war, the overseers of battles for victory. We have the duty to stamp out these infections on our lands, these ruthless enemies whose reputation is infamous. They are perverters of justice, promoters of depravity, and servants of greed. Now, how much you want to bet? At least, I mean, I'm not a betting man, but I would put on this that the their conquerors who are coming over, I think these are the Romans here, um, they would call these people the terrorists. They're going to fight the terrorists, right? The, in, in modern terms. I mean, they're, they're, they're the barbarians, right? They're going to fight these barbarian terrorists who are looking at them and going, these people are disgusting, immoral, depraved people coming to bring their values onto us and, you know, destroy our family life. And we're not going to have that. So how many of, you know, these other countries who, you know, we talk about the cause of freedom that we're bringing them, they're looking at us in the same, the same light as Nero's kingdom. They are a race who enjoys unmanly pleasures, who delights in the infliction of pain on the helpless, but cringes like a dog at the prospect of its own suffering, whose uh, approbation is more to be feared in its friendship, more to be shunned than its enemy, or than its enmity, excuse me. Never will I surrender to people whose ways I abhor, nor will I ever desire to live to see my countrymen treated as servile serfs. May the great godly powers be with us now in the great testing time as we gird ourselves to face the issue. And of course, this is her pre-battle speech. Unfortunately, reading on, those brave, inspiring words were of no avail and Britain was lost. But the spirit could not be quenched and manliness was maintained. It is not in victory that a race finds greatness, but in defeat. Isn't that interesting? I, I love that. Let me read that again. It is not in victory that a race finds greatness, but in defeat. The knowledge of Mashiach came not through peace and prosperity, but through persecution. That which is written is not a tale of victory, but of the glory that resides in defeat. And we, we know this with the life of Mashiach, right? Victory came through his defeat. Just as the martyr, victory came through the martyrdom of the set apart of his Talmud. The books which are the recipe for victory are written by defeated men. Which, of course, victorious men, on the other hand, can write their own history. But they're kind of reversing this and saying the true victorious books are written by defeated men. Very opposite of you know, 1984 Orwellian. I love this. I, Elfid, write these things, but they are not from my own heart, but come from the hand of others. This is that Elfid, Elfid who married Marcella, maid of Elted after the death of her husband, who tripped over a stone and fell on a spike and died bent like a bow. That's unfortunate. He added that little detail in there. Apparently... <laughs> Uh, of the people knew who this guy was, who tripped and fell on a spike and died. All right, uh, chapter three, Yahusha, part two. 
Now, I will warn you, there is a passage in here. Uh, you'll know what I mean when I get to it. It's not a very nice passage. And, uh, and just hang with me. I'm going to read through it. I will not commit this, the sin of the scribes and erase it because I don't like it. However, the compilers of this book, the, the ancient compilers, by the way, they said that somebody came and they added this paragraph into the book. And this is one of the sin of the scribes that you see very often the beginning of books, the end of books. They would add their own doctrines as well on the top and the bottom of the pages. Easily done. They would wedge it in if it became a part of the document. All right. Yehusha was the son of Miriam called Mary by Yosef. His brothers were Yaakov, or in English, Jacob, Yosef, Shimon, and again, Yaakov, which would be James. So I put James and Jacob there. You know, it, it appears that, you know, did he have two brothers named Yaakov? That's kind of interesting. He was born at Bethlehem. In the days of his youth, the land rang with the exploits of Yehuda the Galilean. Yehuda the Galilean was like the precursor to John the Baptist, or Yochanan the Baptizer. And um, I'm not positive. I'd look, like to look into this, but this Yehuda the Galilean may have been the individual who started the Essenes. Don't quote me on that. But I, I'm I'm kind of looking into that right now. Who preached that there was no ruler but Elohim. He was called the teacher of righteousness in his day. So when you look at when you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, that matches up with this. When they talk about the teacher of righteousness, he was the 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 founder of the Qumran community, uh, most likely. And he was the one who separated himself from the priest at the temple. Because he could, you know, they were just a bunch of crooks there, a uh, bunch of hypocrites. He could no longer perform the rites. They went out. They may have taken the library of the temple with them, or they wrote their own library, and they went out there to the Dead Sea community. And um, that's where Yochanan the baptizer was raised. And you'll see more here as we go on, or we go along. Um, all right, teacher righteousness of his day. So, by the way, when a lot of people get into the, the Paul theory, that the teacher of righteousness was Yahusha, the man of deceit was Paul. Um, I don't hold to that, nor, nor in my anti-Paul days did I, did I hold to that. They're kind of, I think, pushing something on that I don't think is, is accurate. Um, it's actually referring to the, the, uh, the forming of the community. And you can see right here, it tells you, Yehuda the Galilean is not Yahusha HaMashiach, all right? But he is the teacher of righteousness. Yahusha HaMashiach was not the teacher of righteousness, all right? Yosef, Yahusha's father, died when Yahusha was 16. Mary, his mother. Now, um, according to some other texts that are more Catholic-oriented, he died when he was 13. So we're pretty close on that. We see a little bit of divergence in, in, the, in the ages. He died when he was 16. Uh, Mary, his mother, did not like his inwardness, his long silences, and his solitary habits. She rebuked him for being a, a tardy breadwinner. But this was unjust, for he excelled in his craft. She could not, she could not understand uh, her strange son, who was unlike the others. And she wanted a practical man, not a dreamer and a preacher. I, I love that paragraph. I mean, that description of the character of the very human Yahushua HaMashiach is, is, I love it. Absolutely love it. And to see that, con that little bit of the tension there where... Uh, Miriam, his mother, she's like, 
I know this is a really special boy, but I just don't get this. Like, this, he's not the person I thought he would be. But she hung by him his whole life, obviously. Um, Yahushua had spells of rapture, and his male kinsfolk declared he was out of his mind. <laughs> how many of us connect with that? I mean, how many who, like, follow on the narrow path? People all around in the religious community go, you guys are mad. Like, you guys are crazy. And uh, this is Yehuda, by the way. These are people who are following the Torah, supposedly. And the, the Messiah, they're like, this guy's crazy. This guy's a madman. So they sought to have him put under restraint. They, they wanted to put him in prison or house confinement or something. But the women folk, I like this part, the women folk said he was harmless. And in cases such as this, their words colored the law of the land. Yehusha loved his father who had taught him his trade. He consoled himself with the scriptures, which said, I will become his father and he shall be my son. A quick note as well. It's interesting that um, the writers of this book, I don't know their feelings on uh, Mary, his mother. Did she have more children afterwards? This is contested. Um, you know, did she remain a virgin her whole life? I, I'm fine either way. I really don't care. I'm kind of of the opinion that she only had one child and that it was Yahusha. Now, I'm fine if she had more. But it's interesting here. You see that she's not looking to her other sons. She's looking to Yahusha, right? She's like, I need you for me to be this certain individual that you're not. She's not looking to her other sons for that. So it's something to, you know, the idea is that the other sons came from Yosef through a former marriage and that they were much older. Um, Yahushua early became a wandering carpenter and then joined the Nazarenes. There, there was excitement in the land because it was said that the prophecy of Daniel was to be fulfilled in these times. The conditions of the times fulfilled the predictions. Now, I'm of the opinion that now the, Naz, the Nazarenes probably very closely related to what we know as the Nazarene, right? Um, I actually am leaning towards the fact that uh, the the these Nazarenes were, um, uh, man, I'm live now and I, I'm totally, uh, the Essenes, excuse me, the Essenes. Um, now, just so you guys know, a lot of people, you're going to, you're going to tell me, that if he came from the school of thought of the Essenes, that that proves that he never would have gotten married. All right. Now, I know that's not the subject of this book. I just want to throw that out there. Actually, that's not true. Many of the Essenes actually were married. They got married after they became Essenes. And in fact, at Qumran, near Qumran, they have a huge graveyard there of women and children. So all these stories that they didn't marry, that's not true. And people have tried to create these fictions, these ideas in their minds about how the women and children were excluded. That's not true. They, they had families. Um, but I actually, um, I'm coming more and more to the conclusion that that the early Christians were an offshoot of the Essenes. And they probably took two schools of thought. There were probably early Christians. We have in early books where they didn't marry. And then there were some who did. And you see that in Essene thought. <clears throat> then Yahushua went into the wilderness don't, don't uh, tune out here. 
he went into the wilderness beside the Jordan, the Jordan River. He joined the Society of Saints, which was beside the Sea of Heavy Salt. Okay? It's Qumran area. Now, when we went through the the, the series on uh, He Walked the Americas, and it, the Native Americans talk about how the, the Hebrew stones, particularly the Ten Commandments stone in New Mexico, it's called the, the Decalogue stone or something like that, it's actually written in Paleo-Hebrew. It says that the white prophet, who we know as Yehusha HaMashiach, personally wrote that with his hands. That's his writing. Well, just a wild guess here. What if um, what if some of the Dead Sea Scrolls were personally written by Yehusha HaMashiach? Think about that. No one is. No one ever thinks about that. Some people have speculated uh, Yochanan the Baptizer, he wrote, I, I, I wouldn't doubt it. When he came back to the Yarden, uh, he no longer retired within himself, but was a man of direct and forceful speech. He was decisive and commanding. So here he is. He goes and he joins the society by the Dead Sea. He lives with them for a while. He learns. He's the, At Qumran, they were writing books all day. So he was probably writing some of those scrolls. Maybe he wrote the Isaiah scroll. Who knows? Wouldn't that be awesome? Uh, and he comes back and he is now the Messiah. The people called him the Galilean because he was raised in Galil. And they sought to name him the man of messianic hope and the suffering just one when Yehudin the Galilean was dead. Some thought he was the warrior Messiah, the warrior Mashiach, but he rebuked them saying, I am he of whom it is written. He shall judge the poor rightly and reprove those who oppress them. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and slay the wicked and the words that issue from his mouth. So quickly here, uh, there were two types of messiahs in the first century. There was the uh, peaceful Shalom Mashiach and the warrior Mashiach. And if you read the book of the Nazarene or the Gospel of Clyde, it talks about many different Mashiachs. They're all competing at the same time. I mean, it was like just it was just white, white noise. I mean, there were so many of them. And um, and one of them was Barabbas, who was Yehusha Barabbas. He was the warrior uh, Mashiach. Some of them would claim to be both. Some would claim to be either the warrior or the the passive one. And Yehusha's like, I'm not the warrior one. I'm I'm the you know one to bring in peace. He wrought cures, as did many others in those times. The Levites put out that he did not as they, but by the power of the Prince of Darkness. We see this all through the Gospels. But Yahushua said that such was blasphemy, as this healing ruach of Elohim was strong within them, within him. Therefore, such an accusation was a sin, but they mocked him. He was a true man, a good organizer, strong, alert, and resourceful. He had determination and courage, though, uh, though withal he could be gentle and compassionate. He was inflexible in purpose. Yet he could bend before the storm and survive where the stubborn man would go down. He stood firmly against the holy men of Yahudim, whose seeming holiness was but a cloak. That would be, the, of course, the Pharisees. For, and I guess you could say the Sanhedrin as well. For it was something that flourished only in the, in the public eye. It was woven with self-righteousness, lined with intolerance, and sown or soon with threads of sadness. 
Good men do good deeds out of the sight of others and gain merit from their selfishness and sacrifices. One came to Yahushua saying, Adonai, I give many gifts and alms to the poor. I am ever giving to the needy. I am a rich man, but my riches have come by lawful means. I have traded with ships and encountered dangers to accumulate them. Having gained wealth, I live in moderation, supplying only my moderate needs. I give the rest to the needy poor, and I am ever ready to serve the deserving. Am I then a, am I then a sinner? Yahushua said, no, by giving with discretion and making such sacrifices, you gain merit. And there is no harm in seeking riches for worthy ends. This is something we see all through the Gospel of Clyde. He's like, he's like, no, there's no wickedness in, in, in riches. As long as you are using those riches to, you know, help those in needs, to hire people, you know, to do work and so on and so forth. You know, you give your money to pay other people to do work and, you know, don't just hoard it for yourself. It is the love of money for its own sake that is productive of evil. The evils of riches arise from their misuse. If a man gains wealth in a lawful way and does not live in luxury, supplying no more than his moderate needs, serving the poor and deserving with his surplus, then he does no wrong. A teacher of the Yehudish way said to Yehusha, if God is so great and all-knowing, why does he not strike down the wrongdoer? Why does he withhold his justifiable wrath when the wicked man swallows up the man who follows the path of goodness? Is he not the God of justice? Yahushua replied, justice is not a thing of the time. Though the mills of Elohim grind slowly, they grind to perfection. Life itself mets out justice. The justice of Elohim adjusts the injustice of men. Where there is not so, I would not have come. I need to stop for a drink here. Yehusha was then asked if he was one with Elohim. He answered, it is not in me to state that which I know to be untrue, and truly there can be but one Elohim alone. Because I have been granted visions and insight into things unseen and unknown to other men, what manner of man would I be should I claim equality with Elohim? I have spoken only that which I am bidden. I have said, worship Elohim, who is my father and your father. Does this then raise me above other men? I have proclaimed all men my brothers, and if I have said I am even as Elohim, then truly I have raised them up also. Yet this they cannot see, or is it that they fear the burden of their own godhood? Yahushua came and was like the slasher which clears away the useless undergrowth in the forest of life. He uprooted and burned that which was unproductive. He planted good trees, but the undergrowth returns. This is talking about like the wheat and the tares. It is a time for the activities of good men. And, and let me just talk about like the, the underbrush brush returning. It's kind of like when, when Yahushua came, he planted this, this pure faith, right? And you see that the pureness of this faith in that first generation spread everywhere. But quickly the undergrowth returned. A good example of this is uh, I just finished reading the book of Jasher today with, to my family. And you see that it, it, Joshua, the book of Yahushua ends the same way 
where that generation, they go in and they put their lives, they put everything on stake to defeat these wicked people there and clear out the land. And they go inhabit the land for the rest of their life. They were true to Yahuwah. They worshipped him. But they were the last, the only generation that was true to him. Because the generation, the father of children who weren't there to take over the land, they took it for granted. They started slipping some, the grandchildren. And it just, it was a slip, it was a slippery slope from then on. We see the same thing with Yahushua in that generation and the undergrowth that started, you know, the weeds that started coming up immediately in the forest that came in and just, you know, and, and took over the faith. Um, it is a time for the activities of good men. Yahushua found pearls by the seashore. He sowed the good seed in the hearts of those who followed him closely. For his sake, many of the rich became poor. He came and separated men out from the errors of the world. He brought men a mirror into which they could look and see their own divinity. Some of you will have problems with passages like that. I would have a couple of years ago, um, but you know I've changed my position entirely and uh, showing that um, we are the sons of Elohim. You know, we are pre-existent, the sons of Elohim, that we fell down and he has come to retrieve us and bring us back to our former state. Most people will fail that test and they will not return. He opened a door now. This is why, of course, we can call him brothers, right? If you were had any question about a couple paragraphs above. He opened a door now open to all. And those who cho choose to pass through stand on the road to the eternal. He raised up the fallen and healed the afflicted. He woke those who slept and reminded those who had forgotten. He enlightened the righteous and gathered in those who were lost. To what can he be compared? To the great sun that shines down, giving joy and life to all living things. To a great river giving gladness to men and the waters of life to beast, to the good husbandman who cherishes his fields and tends his flocks. These are all things Yahushua described. He's the shepherd. He is the, uh, the water of life. Uh, he is the light. To the men of the forest who care for the trees and thankfully gather the fruits thereof. The sun shines today and the air gleams with light. The earth puts forth blossoms and the seas are calm. The waters flow clearly, the birds sing, and the gloomy winter has gone. Hope dawns, and so it is with the son of Adam. The tree of glory has been planted and will survive, for it is well serviced. Its, its servants are dutiful. So let it be like the holly whose leaves are not shed in summer or winter, which stands with weapons ever ready in persecution or freedom in good days and bad. As you guys know, the... Uh, the, the holly is, uh, you know, very precious to the Druidic uh, people. He who neglects these scriptures is like the branch of a fruitless tree. His life is fruitless. Blessed are those who seek fruit that grows out of our good deeds. And I think what they're saying there with the, with the holly is that even if the tree loses its leaves, you will be there you know, throughout the winter, you're going to, you're going to, you know, the, the, the true son of Elohim, the divine soul, you will, you know, with all the other fruit has rotted away, you will be there on the tree. 
Blessed are those who seek fruit that grows out of the good deeds. He who copies a book is like a maimed man who gives his weapons to a whole and healthy man. Of course, I identify with this because this is what I spent a lot of my time doing, uh, you know, copying books down for you guys. Uh, the lettered man resembles this good land which takes the seed and nourishes it. The rain falls plentifully and the crop is good. So I guess I'm the maimed man. I'm uh, <laughs> as, as I speak today, I'm kind of sick today. So uh, hopefully uh, many more will be blessed uh, by this. The life men live is like an inn where they dwell shortly or like a house rented for a limited time. They're talking about our actual bodies, right? Our, our soul uh, goes on. There's two souls. There's souls that refer to our body, but the, the inner soul, the pre-existent soul that, you know, is fitted in this body. This is the, the house the, that we rent for a short time. Vessels of metal and earthenware are to them like borrowed utensils. Their riches are held in trust. I love that. Everything you have is held in trust. The wise man uses them and they serve him, but he does not set his heart on these or hug them to his bosom, All right? So we're not, we're not serving material goods. Material goods serve us in order to live our life, to do our work, right? To do the work of the, the Ruach, the spirit, the, the eternal self, you could say kingdom work, all right? There's nothing wrong with material things as long as they serve us and we don't serve them, you know, as long as we don't serve money. Who is most praiseworthy for his goodness, the son of a rich man or the son of a poor man? The rich son gives only what he himself has been given. So surely it is the son of the poor man, for he has overcome the temptations of poverty and satisfied the cry of hungry mouths with the earnings of his own labor. It is the poor who help the poor, for the rich help themselves. There are those who fast for the sake of heaven, but Yahushua said it were better that they devote themselves to learning the scriptures and to good works for the sake of heaven. Yet it is, it is useless to merely read the scriptures, for unless they are taken into the heart and lived by, then they are things of little value and use. Excuse me. You're going to need another drink. The value. Hold on here. <clears throat> Let's see if my voice holds out tonight. <clears throat> All right. Yet it is useless to merely read the scriptures. For unless they are taken into the heart and live by, and by the way, this is what this is talking about right here, just so we're clear. It's talking about the difference between a circumcised heart and circumcised flesh. Circumcised flesh, which is good. People only with circumcised flesh, they are just reading the scripture. People with a circumcised heart are the people that are doing scripture, right? For unless they are taken into the heart and live by, then they are things of little value and use. The value of all sacred writings lies in what people do with them. More important still is what the scriptures do to the people. A man asked Yahushua, Adonai, what does it mean when it is written that the iniquities of the fathers shall be visited upon the children 
Yahusha said, when a man commits a sin for which he does not make full recompense in his lifetime, then the same temptation is placed in the way of the son, for there is a bond of family blood between them. I love this. Is it not manifest also that the wrongs a man does within his own household becomes the sins of the sons within their households? Wrongful living is the heritage of generations. So you guys have all seen this as parents. How, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, when, <laughs> when a child says like a four letter word and it's like, uh, and as a parent, you're like, where did you hear that from? And you, you know where they heard that from. That's just a, you know, a minuscule example when we see actual traits. You know, one of the hard things about a parent is seeing the things you don't want to acknowledge about yourself, the traits you don't like about yourself, you see them repeated in your children. And you're like, oh. So you have to discipline them on these things when you realize these are things that I need to change about myself. If you're truly, I think, you know, if you have that circumcised heart as a parent, you, you recognize your own fallacies in disciplining your children. A man asked, where is Elohim? Yahushua took a piece of bread and gave it to the man saying, take this and hold it. Then he said, put out the other hand. He poured a little water on the upturned palm and said, now you have felt the power of Elohim. For without his ruach and the bread and then the water, these would not exist for you. Split a, a billet of wood and Elohim will be there. Lift up the stone and you will find him. Now, I forgot this passage was in here, and I wish I had it in front of me. This is there's a parallel quote here in the Gospel of Thomas in Bezora Teom, talking about splitting open the wood. The difference is in that in the Gospel of Bezora Teom, he says, You split open, I will be there. And here he says, Elohim will be there. So that's one of the divergences in this text. Which which text is the more truthful text, which is the more accurate one? I'll let you guys decide that. Or are they both correct from a different perspective? Because that could be the case as well. Another said, tell us how we may best serve Elohim. Yahushua replied, talk not of serving Elohim as you would serve a king. <coughs> in serving Elohim, man serves himself. You ask in your heart, shall you be this or that or a priest? Let your own heart point in the, be the best way. And having chosen it, follow it with devotion and fortitude. Now, I have some serious questions about this one here because we know that the heart is deceitful above all things. I think, though, what he's getting at is that when you read all through the Gospel of Kalani, he doesn't reprimand musicians or people of different trades. He's basically like, you're a tax collector. You're a musician. You're an artist. You're a this and that. You're a soldier. Be the best soldier you can, you know, be the best captain of the guards, be the best, you know, don't cheat people as a tax collector, be a good musician, right? Be all, whatever you are. I think this is what he means by your, by your heart, because each of us have inclinations, you know, character traits that lead us to a certain profession. And he's saying, be all that you can be the fullness, you know, and to yourself, not to be the fullness in this, right? To serve Elohim through what you, um, through your profession. All right. At a wedding feast, Yahushua was asked, Master, why do you come to this place when it is a gathering place for those who seek only their own pleasure and will drink to excess if it is provided? And Yahushua said, 
Our purpose here is to make glad the hearts of the host and to share in their enjoyment, blending their pleasure with ours. There will always be those who are neglect, neglectful of their obligations and who concern themselves only with their own well-being. Yet is, yet is this reason enough not to bring happiness to those who have invited us? One day, Yahusha and those with him came upon an old man playing with childish things. A bow and arrow-bearing huntsman passing by mocked him, saying, Behold, the old man playing as a child. Yahusha called him over and said, Do you always keep your bow bent, the string under stress? Of course not, replied the huntsman. To do so would be foolish, for the bow would become useless were it not unbent from time to time. Yahusha said, Just so it is, oh, just so is it with the old man, and you should know better. All right. This is an interesting passage right here. I'm going to read from, really quickly, I'm going to take another drink here. I'm going to, I might take a, I might need to take a break here real soon. I'm going to read to you guys from the Acts of Yochanan. The Acts of Yochanan, this would be the Acts of John. It's a very similar story to this, okay? So pay attention. It is said that the most beloved Yochanan, when he was gently stroking a partridge, like a bird, or he's stroking a bird, with his hands, suddenly saw one in the habit of a hunter coming to him. He wondered that a man of such repute and fame should demean himself to such small and humble amusements. So this, this guy couldn't understand why this great Yochanan, this guy, this, this reputation as a disciple of Yahusha would be taking the time to just enjoy an animal. And he said, uh, are you that Yochanan whose imminent and widespread fame has enticed me also with great desire to know you? Why then are you taken up with such mean amusements? The blessed Yochanan said to him, what is it that you carry in your hands? A bow, said he. So same story with the bow, right? And why, said he, do you not bear it about always stretched? He answered him, I must not, lest by constant bending the strength of its vigor be wrung and grow soft and perish. And when there is need that the arrows be shot with much strength at some beast, the strength being lost by excess of continual tension, a forcible blow cannot be dealt. Just so, said the blessed Yochanan, let not this little and brief relaxation of my mind offend you. Young man, for unless it do sometimes ease and relax by some remission, the force of its tension, it will grow slack through unbroken rigor and will not be able to obey the power of the Ruach. And of course, this is one of the reasons why we're commanded to take the Sabbath once a week, uh, every seven days, because if we didn't, then we would be like that bow, always pull back, right? And it would lose the strength of its vigor that when you really needed to hunt with it in that moment, it wouldn't be able to. You got to relax it, bend it back. And that's why... Yochanan was taking the time to pet that bird. All right. The bowman strings his bow going back to, uh, so what, what I'm, uh, the reason I gave that story because it's very similar with this one here. We see two different books, one that is directly related to Yahushua HaMashiach, and then it seems like Yochanan is actually taking this story that he heard from Messiah that we have in no canon, 
but it's written in the Acts of Yochanan. So isn't that interesting? Anyways, continuing on with Book of Britain, the bowman strings his bow before he shoots, and when the shooting is over, he unstrings it. A bow kept always strong will break and be useless when needed. So it is with the man who never relaxes. He is ever taught within, and when the testing time comes, his stomach turns to water. So that's where Yochanan got his story from, right there. All right, let's see if I can make this tonight, another 40 minutes. Keep reading. I'm pushing my voice to its limit tonight. Yahushua taught that there are things which should be approached with humility of Ruach. They are holiness, wisdom, and nobility. Humility bestows upon the soul the benefit of harmony and attunement. A man once said to Yahushua, but who can define these things? That which is holy to one man can be unholy to another. The thing which one man holds sacred, another holds to be an abomination. That which one will bless, another will curse. Yahushua said, the many nations and men, because of the diversity of their natures, uh, halo many different persons, places and things apart from their gods, but nothing can be made holy by men alone. Neither can anything holy of earth be holy. That which is holy of and for Elohim is holy. The place holy for Elohim is holy, and the person who lives holy for Elohim is holy. But where on earth can such absoluteness be found? If by gathering in a temple men feel they can better commune with Elohim, then he will be there. Hold on a second, guys. Sorry, I'm having complications right now. And that place will be holy. If within a circle of stones, so if you want to put a red flag on this, feel free to. If within a circle of stones or before a, a symbolic image, I don't really know about this, but we can discuss this afterwards if you'd like. If before a symbolic image, the soul of man may be stirred to attunement, then Elohim will not uh, absent himself because of the nature of the place. He will meet man wherever man earnestly prepares for his coming. Just so you guys know, I do not believe he's talking about an idol here. That I think this book in, it talks about idols later on, and it's not pro-idol. So it's talking about a symbolic image of something, kind of like you might see in uh, the Jewish synagogues or the like. They would have symbolic images, things that we might see in the cathedrals and so on and so forth. Uh, though the temple may be holy to one man and the circle stones to another, both places will be hallowed by Elohim if therein the souls of men are elevated to commune with him. A structure of splendor, magnificent in its architecture, called holy by men who worship there, if their spirits remain asleep and unstirred, will not be hallowed by the presence of Elohim. He does not honor places where men just congregate, whether their voices alone are raised in worship. Well, that's interesting. I agree with that. He hollows the place where their souls and their ruachoth are uplifted as they seek communion with him. A holy place is where the uplifted ruachoth of men blend with the nature of Elohim. I just to kind of lay this out why I agree with this so much is you know this this many of us here have come out of that routine that rut that uh, that vacuum where you just this you go through this cyclic thing in church week after week and you usually just you usually just read the, the letters of Paul and you you dissect them, not according to the Torah, of course. And, and you, you go through years of just not getting anywhere. And what does this all mean? And how do we live our lives? And all this kind of stuff. And you just go through the routine of these worship songs and stuff. And, and it's just lukewarm churches, you know. The idea of a, a, a lukewarm 
uh, church in Revelation at Laodicea is like a, it's kind of like a hibernating bear where a bear kind of wakes up and then goes back to sleep again. It kind of wakes up, goes back to sleep again. And that's where Yahusha says in Revelation, I'd rather you be hot or cold, one or the other. I can't stand this whole lukewarm thing. Uh, and this is, of course, what we see in so many churches, so many that we have come out of. Um, all right. A man asks, what of wisdom? Has this not been plentiful in the world since the days of the great enlighteners of whom Shaloma, that would be Solomon, was deemed the greatest? Even before him, there was much wisdom. Yet is earth a better place for this? What has it contributed to progress? Yehusha replied, alas, never has there been a shortage of wisdom in the world, but always there has been too little in the hearts of men. Wisdom is not something written in books, but that which is conveyed from the book of the heart. It is a way of life. And this would convey back to what it says that, you know, the, the purpose of scripture is to change a man, right? Not just circumcise his flesh, but circumcise his heart, right? And, you know, there you go. So it, it's, it's not just something in books. It's got to be in man. But it comes from books, but it has to be in the heart of man, and it's not. So we have all these books on wisdom, but so little wisdom in people. All the wisdom of the past held in reverence by some was easier to write than to live by. So there you go. That explains it better than I just explained it. Yet following it, following it, what is written in books is the only wisdom. Wisdom, however, is more than the thoughts of the wise. It is the accumulated philosophical knowledge of mankind winnowed by the wind of practicality. Wow, how awesome is that sentence right there? Nobility is an attribute of the soul, and no man has this by right of birth. No, nobility demonstrates an ability to live and act according to the high principles. It is expressed in deeds, outlook, and bearing in the matter of life and re relationship with others. I mean, if you want to sum this up in modern terms, it's like in one sentence, it's, you know, Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech. You know, I, I have a dream that he says that, you know, we would not be judged by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character, which is something that the current uh, BLM movement and all the Intel run stuff, of course, you know, the, the, uh, the human rights movement of the, uh, the 50s and 60s was run by Intel too, but that's a side note. You know, they've all forgotten this. It's no longer has anything to do with the content of your character, but all based on your skin, which creates some sort of nobility that we're supposed to honor and what Yahushua says here, like, no, nobility doesn't come by your birth. It doesn't matter who you are, what people you are, whether you're from Judah or Britain or Rome. It's, it all comes by your ability to take wisdom into your heart and live a, a, a noble life. That is how you're judged, by the content of your character. Uh, let's see. Let's see. I'm going to repeat sentence here. Nobility demonstrates an ability to live and act according to the high principles. It is expressed in deeds, outlook, and bearing in the matter of life and relationship with others. That which ennobles a man is his recognition of something to love and strive for outside of himself. Nobility is the subordination of self to principles. Yahushua was one in whom all the virtues came to fruition and his gentleness drew to him all his neighbors. In his presence, even enemies were reconciled. 
and this presence alone brought tranquility to a restless and sorrowful heart. In the street, even the little children followed him just to touch his hand. You guys know that passage about, you know, let the children come to me. Apparently they were really coming up to him. As it said here, they would just follow him around. His reaction to injustice and insult was a sorrowful compassion. He neither sought to acquire anything beyond his immediate needs nor treasured what he had. Beneath his soft exterior was a rock-like, immovable determination immune to oppression and suffering alike. Despite his gentleness, he could act decisively and swiftly. And when he had cause to strike in the name of justice and right, he never avoided the issue. So we know of one incident when he did that at the temple, right? He was a man that was meek and gentle, but when he came in and, you know, strike, he did so. He let them know, this is why I'm doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, expressing to you, you know, communicating why I am chastising you in this way because you have done ABC, XYZ. His mind and wit were like the lightning flash. He was always keen and alert, and his face never lacked the calm beauty of cheerfulness. He was friendly towards all and acted so, so as not to annoy anyone. Only in the face of great injustice to another or oppression of the weak, or in the presence of gross hypocrisy, did his wrath boil up and overflow. But never was it other than righteous. Though always compassionate and sympathetic, he was never sad or downcast. He rose above all suffering and pain and ever seemed at peace within himself. Now, this is a uh, this is a very multi-dimensional uh, picture that they're giving of Yahushua Mashiach. One thing that is different from the is it the letter of Longinus or whatever it is. Uh, I can't recall the, the guy who wrote the letter right now, but he said he was always like very serious all the time. That doesn't seem to be what's being expressed here. It, it seems like he's, you know, multi-textual in his emotions. Miriam said to Yahushua, this would be his mother, to whom can your disciples be likened? And Yahushua said, they are like children that play in a field which belongs to a stranger. And when the owner comes, they say, this is our field, therefore convey it to us. Teom said, this would be Thomas, if your Ruach brought the, uh, the body of flesh into being, it is a marvel. And Yahushua said, it would be a much greater miracle had the body brought the spirit into being. For the lesser cannot create the greater. <clears throat> what he's basically saying is that our, our Ruach pre-existed before our body. That our body did not bring our spirit about, our spirit brought our body about. Does that make sense? He said that that would be the greater miracle. I marvel how this great wealth of beauty can dwell in such a mean habitation. This is you know, what we're renting, our, our house space. He's saying that if you guys could only see your true soul, your true Ruach, you would see how beautifully divine it truly is. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where if mankind, you know, crude mankind, as they go about sinning in the world and not caring about righteousness, if they could see the what they could have, you know, that their, their former state as a son of Elohim, they would, you know, many of them would turn, not all of them, the wicked people probably wouldn't, but they would turn their life around. But to he who has goodness in his heart, goodness shall be given. He who lacks goodness shall be stripped of what he has. 
Yahushua also said, just as it is impossible for any man to stretch two bows or mount two horses, so it is impossible for a man to serve two masters. The disciples asked, is circumcision a good thing? You might want to put a red flag on that. We can discuss this afterwards. Yahushua replied, if it were, if it were, uh, if it, if it were, there should be, I guess, a comma there. If it were, would not children be born circumcised from the mother's womb? Only circumcision in the Ruach confers true benefit. When asked concerning accounting, Yahushua said, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to Elohim that which is Elohim's. Give me what is justly mine and keep for yourselves only that which is rightly your due. Deal fairly with all men and shun the morals of the marketplace. Do not become like the Shomeran, who loving a tree hate its fruits, or loving the fruit hate the tree. The perishing, the Pharisees, is like a dog sleeping in the manger from whence the oxen eats. It cannot eat what is in the manger, neither will it let the oxen eat. I love this passage because what he's saying is that the, the Pharisees see themselves as the spiritual leader of the people. And yet he's saying, so imagine that the oxen are the people. And he's saying that they're, they're the dogs sitting in the manger. The people they're claiming to lead to spiritual truths, they can't even come and be nourished by them. They can't even come up and, you know, eat the straw. I love that quote. It's like he has a way of saying things that are just so phenomenal. Yahushua said, the kingdom of heaven is like a woman carrying a jar of good wine. Being careless, she puts the jar down heavily and crashes it. And when she resumes her way, the wine spills out behind her on the road, but she blithely continues on her way, unaware of the spillage. When she enters the house, the master takes the wine jar and finds it empty. The disciples asked what this could mean, and Yahushua replied, When you possess the good things of the kingdom of heaven, do not let them slip away. For the kingdom of heaven is neither here nor there and contains all good things. It is in the hearts of men and exists where Elohim reigns. When the lion lays down with the lamb, apparently he didn't get the memo about the or the Mandela effect. Uh, he's quoting from Yeshayahu here, but this quote no longer exists. When the lion lays down with the lamb and Shalom reigns over all, it's not the wolf and the lamb, it's the lion and the lamb, there shall be found the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying that there will come a time when the lion will lay down with the lamb and there, at that spot, is the kingdom of heaven. Yet truly, heaven and the kingdom of heaven are not the same. These things were said in the forecourt of the temple. Yahushua took the disciples who were with him into the court of the Hebrews, which was an inner place, and a warden, a priest named Levi, stopped them, saying, to Yahusha. What did he say to Yahusha? He said, oh, I just lost my place. Are you an ignorant man? Do you not know it is forbidden to walk here in the presence of holy things without first purifying yourselves? See, those who follow you have not even washed their feet. They enter here defiled by the world. Then Yahusha stops and said to Levi, Concern yourself with your own state rather than with ours. Now, this story right here, we can discuss this if there's some translation issues, other things like that. I love this quote, though, because when you get into the, the Torah community 
And uh, some people call it the Hebrew roots. I don't consider myself Hebrew roots. When you get into the Torah community, there are individuals who love to go around telling you they are experts on the law. And they love telling you how in this moment and that moment you're living in sin. They know it better than you do. And they are going around. And then, of course, you find out that a lot of these people, they, uh, they're kind of they're what, what, I, what we call Torah terrorists. They're online. They don't even keep it themselves when you talk to people who know them, but they just want everyone else to do it. This happens a lot. It's out there all the time. A bunch of hypocrites. And this is why he's like, he was just like, you're not even, you know, you're not even concerned with yourself. Why don't you get concerned with your own life before you start telling me what is, uh, what is lawful and what is unlawful? And he goes on, he says, uh, let's see. That Yahushua took the disciples who were with him into the court of the Hebrews. Okay, wait, wait, hold on. Uh, oh, yeah. The priest replied, I am clean, having bathed in David's pool, going down by one set of steps and coming up by another. Only having done this and donned clean clothes have I come here. Yahushua said, Adonai, have mercy on the blind. Now, just so you guys know, every time I see the Lord in here, uh, I'm putting Adonai, um, you know, I... I didn't want to just impose on what I think it should say. So I put Adonai. Adonai, have mercy on the blind. You have washed in standing water, which may have been befouled by dogs, meaning the dogs may have gone out there and taken a dump in it, peed in it, you know, lifted a leg into the water. And maybe there were, maybe there were dogs all around there. I don't really know. And scrubbed your outer skin as harlots, singing girls and vain men do who are full of vileness inside. But my Talmudim and I have little need for outer forms of ritual cleanliness, being clean within, for we have washed in the living waters of the Ruach. Having departed from the temple, Yahushua said, do not the guests assemble in the antechamber before entering the feast halls? There the hands and feet are washed, the heads anointed, and small foods to whet the appetite are eaten. Even so is the earth, the antechamber of the kingdom of heaven. Live your lives in the world as men who journey through a strange land, marveling at its wonders, tasting its pleasures, but ever on guard against dangers. For undue love of the world is a doorway to evil. There are those who derive pleasure in being what they are not. But as their hair turns gray, they suffer sorrow and frustration. Be ever true to yourselves and to your natures. And by nature's, you know, I, I think he's talking here about the constant theme of the divine nature within the son of the fact that we are sons of Elohim, that we can be called sons of Elohim. It came to pass at this time that many said that, okay, so this is what I told you starting out. You know, this is a paragraph right here that even the, the compilers of this book said that this was added. There was some scribe that came in and he didn't like Yahushua, so he's like, I'm going to add this paragraph in right here. It came to pass at this time that many said that Yahushua was the Messiah, but this was a manifest falsehood. Yahushua, the son of Yosef and Miriam, was an inspired prophet, a teacher who held the hand of Elohim, and there had been others before him. His mother was a decent woman. <laughs> Not a standing ovation for his mother, I guess. Both ate food as humans do. Miriam did not set herself up as a goddess, neither did she preach. It is of no moment to those who are not Yahudim, whether Yahushua was the herald of the Messiah or not. So believe as you will. 
So this guy's like, look, I don't believe he is. You guys believe what you want. I don't believe he is. But were he born of the whole uh, the Holy Spirit or the Ruach Hakodesh and not of Yosef, then he did not fulfill the prophecy. Men, uh, men step outside the bounds of truth. So he's basically saying that I don't believe he was born of the Ruach Hakodesh. I believe he was born of Yosef. That's what he's saying. This this scribe. Men step outside the bounds of truth in their beliefs, but this too is of little moment unless they impose their belief on others. So he's like, don't impose your beliefs on me. It's like he's he's taking over this text and, you know, imposing his beliefs on it. He's like, even though like, don't impose your beliefs on me, but I'll impose it in your book. It's one of the, you know, it is what it is. Yahushua was not a sorrowful man, for greatness cannot be downcast. He always brought, and also notice here that He's not quoting from Yehusha. He's quoting from himself. So uh, there's some irony for you right there. So Yehusha is not saying he's not the Messiah. This guy is saying. Yehusha was not a sorrowful man. Wow, I just lost like eight people in that paragraph right there. Yehusha was not a sorrowful man, for greatness cannot be downcast. He always brought strength to the disheartened and was not influenced by the despondency of others. When Kepha was dismayed, and shut his sorrow within, Yahushua said, if my friend will not admit me into the antechamber of his sorrows, how can I ever sit in the reception room of his affections? Yahushua set his face against all forms of melancholy. He said, the man who cannot rise above the burden of his sorrows or the trials of the day shall not know the kingdom of heaven, nor can he know the love which is the cornerstone of life. And of course, Kepha, if you don't know, was Peter, his friend. There was a Greek scholar in the crowd who said to Yahushua, your never resting tongue wearies me. Words neither make men nor change things. It is the sword and spear which are powerful and raise kings or cast them down. Yahushua replied, truly the words of scribes are greater than the commands of war chiefs. That which is written and read cannot only change things, but also endure forever. The sword gains prestige through destruction, but the pen of the scribe gains prestige through creating. That which destroys will be destroyed. That which creates shall be preserved. So it's interesting that this is the words of Yahushua here saying the words of a scribe, a scribe is greater than a warrior because you know, the pen is mightier than the sword is another way of saying this. So it's interesting that the scribe who came in and added that he said, like, I don't think Messiah is the... Oh, Yahushua is the Messiah. He did so right above this quote. He added it in here, like, because Yahushua is saying that the pen is better than the story. He's like, well, I'm going to take that advice and I'm going to, you know, take my pen here and, you know, have something that's in a lasting document. A Roman soldier who, who hailed from Gaul spoke up saying, let scribes do what scribes do best and swordsmen do what they do best. But it is foolishness and futile to set one against the other. For a man cannot write with swords or fight with quills or writing reeds. Let men become brothers as they await the day of the awakener. Tell me, good master, when shall the end be? Yahushua answered, there will be an end to the beginning and men will know this by the spirit of the times. Now pay attention to this paragraph because he is describing the news. You know, go like to the Dredge Report or whatever channels you follow on YouTube and he's describing Today, precisely, eerily. Men will no longer be his brothers, nor will they be manly. 
Women will be as men and men as women. Adultery will not be condemned, nor will fornication. Therefore, these will flourish. Men will not honor their homelands, and there will be no discrimination among them. I mean, look what's happening in like with globalization today, right? No longer honoring homelands, and we're bringing in all these different people, and it's like people are ashamed of their homeland now. Nor will they, nor will they maintain the purity of their races. Fathers will not be honored, nor mothers respected, and children will be raised by the wayward. So children are no longer raised by their parents. Who are they raised by? The government. Perversions will be encouraged. OMG, I mean, and criminals will mock the law. Is this not in the news right now where you have like gangs of like 30 criminals like breaking into Nordstrom's and other stores and just ripping things off the walls and you see the gangs of the, the teenagers, you know, running and jumping on cars and laughing and burning down, you know, stealing from gas stations. There will be incest and rape and it will be unsafe to walk abroad. Kind of like unsafe to walk in Chicago or other places, right? Floods, famines, droughts, and earthquakes will cause death and destruction. We know all about that. Strange sicknesses will smite the people, and there will be a denial of Elohim. Babes will be slain in the womb. Ouch. It's talking about abortion. Men will lust after the wives of other men, and marriage shall lose its meaning. Women will go to the marriage table unchaste and with deceits in their hearts. Their husbands, creatures of pity, will hear the mocking voices of laughing men. Priests will defile their altars with the impurity, and the rulers will be held in little repute. I mean, our rulers today, they're held in no repute at all. Every single one of them is just mockery. People mock them. It is not Elohim who marks the end days, but men who lives as though setting a pitfall for himself. Yahushua saw a man ill-treating a horse. Oh, I love this too. I mean, this is so good. This is gold right here. Yahushua saw a man ill-treating a horse, and he rebuked him for his cruelty to a dumb animal. The man became angry and said, this is my beast. Yahushua said, you are wrong. It is Elohim's creature. It's not yours. And I, as his servants, am here to protect it. I'm here to protect your horse from you. For no man can wholly own any living creature, except it be in the name of the great Elohim of life. And this for me is one of those things where, it's one of those gauges where, um, see if someone is spiritual minded or not. Like, you, you know, like when people like, they go like, they, they chase after squirrels and throw rocks at birds and try to step on lizards and, you know, just, you know, like you see people like they, they laugh at it and they, they just see animals and they ill treat them like in the woods and stuff. Whenever I see that, and I can't go out to nature anymore without seeing people do that. It's just, it's, it's horrible. And I go like, that's not a spiritual person. That person is not connected to the most high. Cause if he, if they were, they would respect his creation. This is his creation. He created this. And he thought about this in his mind. This is, this is his, you know, that we are the caretakers of. And so you see that, right? And it, I'll put this into the food debate, guys. I eat meat too, okay? 
but when I go see like the meat eaters out there, we get these discussions of like, you know, you better not tread on my rights to eat meat. And they're like, you know, they'll start talking about, you know, all the rights they have over these animals. And they start disrespecting these animals that they're eating. And I, I look at that and go, I don't think this is a really spiritual person. They're, they're not attuned to, you know, the creator that these animals were put in their care by the creator. Yes, you have a right to eat them. But, you know, there has to be respect for all of his creation. This has been copied and edited as found. It appears to have been preceded by a document entitled The Sayings of Yahusha. So what, what the, this person writing this down saying, look, I'm copying this as I found it. There was a preceding document called The Sayings of Yahusha, but not everything here was original to that document. That's what I told you about that other paragraph. For some reason, it has been cut into pieces, each containing just a few paragraphs. Included were other scraps from such some much later source, that would be the guy who's the Mashiachator, which for various reasons are suspect. Gee, I wonder why. The later part of this manuscript is probably a late, if not modern edition, but it may have been rewritten for some older material. This has not been altered and is included under the authorization given to the compilers. So uh, the, the person of the latest date, uh, he came out and, you know, he said, yeah, that thing towards the end, that was added later. The original stuff was the older stuff that, you know, goes way back. All right. With that, my voice is held out. Thank you for being patient with me. And I tried not to cough too much for you guys or, you know, anything like that. I've been holding back. I was hoping to get at least another chapter or two in, but I had fun talking my way through that. Hopefully you guys appreciated that. I wanted to get a little bit more than just reading. I want to give some commentary. And um, I, I think it's a phenomenal book. Like I said, one of the problems is, is that it's been recopied and recopied, but a lot of the things attested to in here, it, it lines up with the books of the Nazarene, the, of the Gospel of Kaleidi, as well as the Gospel accounts and others. And there's more to come in the following week. We'll continue on through this book. So with that, I'm going to end it. Shabbat Shalom one last time, everybody. We're going to go over to the, uh, the general voice chat, and I'll let you guys talk your way through it. And if if you don't like the book, that's fine. Give me the things you didn't like about it. Give me the things you did like about it. We could discuss all those things. All right, guys. I'll see you over there.